We've been on a series called Reset. And what this really is, is kind of, a, you could think of it almost in an athletic turn of someone resetting for what's ahead, of, of getting prepared, of these questions of what should our roots go down into for the season and the times that life has ahead of us, that God has put ahead of us? What are the things that he would prepare us for and how does he prepare? We've been looking at habits. We've been looking at rhythms. We've been looking at heart change. And we've wanted to be at a spot too where everything God has for us individually, for our families, uh, for us as a church, that we would be rooted and ready for these things. Because in those quiet times, we can, we can so often think this is wasted time or it is, I, I'm not doing anything until I'm doing something. But in the quiet moments when God is forming you is when you assimilate the things that you will be using later on. It's those moments that we learn. It's those moments that we grow, even if we don't realize it. Because of the story I'm going to tell today, I think it's worth starting out reflecting on the way that we summarize people. That we will see someone and they, they become summarized in our mind. And if they've done something shocking or if we just don't like them that much, we judge them at their worst moment. You may have a neighbor that you find out you haven't seen his wife in a while because he had an affair and they're getting a divorce. And every time you pass him in the driveway, you will fight the impulse in your brain to go, oh, there's my neighbor that had the affair. Everything that he did is erased and replaced with that. We're one terrible deed from being fully fleshed out in the minds of others. Now, that would be the thing that we are known for and remembered for. That it would be when people say our name, it would be what travels with us everywhere into time. For instance, you could be an 18th century woman named Mary. And you could be known for lots of stuff. Teacher Mary, baker Mary, good friend Mary. You get a few people sick. Typhoid Mary. Forever and ever and ever, you are Typhoid Mary. We're going to remember you. People will discuss you. No one knows your last name because you are simply Typhoid Mary. And I don't think, if you look at this picture of her, she's the cheery one in black. The humor is not missed on her. It's like the photographer came in, Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Mary over here, Typhoid, Typhoid, look over here, click, bye. That's what happened in this moment um, that ruined Typhoid's Mary's, Typhoid Mary's life. Now, it's funny, I looked her up to make sure I was getting some of the facts straight, and I knew her last name. I've forgotten it. It, start, it starts with an M. I don't, I don't remember. But uh, yeah, Typhoid Mary is what she is remembered for. And we do this with people, that we define them by this, this one thing, like her whole life, that's who she was. And she doesn't look like she enjoys this title at all. I don't even know if she was wearing black before it all happened. We have a way of summarizing other people at their worst moments. If someone cuts you off in traffic and you think to yourself, they're a terrible driver, they shouldn't be on the road. And we don't realize that we are always practicing our belief. The way we think is so critical because we're always practicing how we're going to interpret absolutely everything. We say that enough times that, well, that person's worthless or they don't belong here because of the mistake they made. Those chickens will always come home to roost to where eventually I make a mistake on the road and I'm saying in my head, I shouldn't be driving, I'm a terrible person. We are always practicing. This is why Paul, the apostle, was so concerned. All of his letters have this, this huge theme. He was so concerned with the way people think. 
with how they would think and what goes on in their minds, how important it was to stay steeped in truth and to practice truth in our minds and how we, and the repetition of our thoughts. He sums up the whole thing in Romans 12 too. He says, conform no longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and know what God's will is. We have got this repetition, though, that we summarize people at their worst moments. And we are going to read a story today where that happens. And it's a dangerous thing because as soon as, as, soon as we start to condemn, condemn other people as, as their life is over for what they've done, and we begin to adopt a condemning belief system and we don't let Jesus interrupt that, we don't remember our own salvation, we become condemners, we condemn our own selves and the sin gets worse, whatever you started condemning yourself over. There's three little areas at my apartment. There's a backyard, a front yard, and this little side area where we keep our trash cans. Now, the front yard looks good, because that's what people are going to see. Every day when Amazon drives up to deliver to one of us, it's frightening how many of us in that apartment get Amazon in there every day. They wheel in, and the front yard looks very nice for them. The backyard, not so much, but the worst by far is the side yard where the trash cans are. I do nothing with that. I'm, I'm not kidding, church. There are three dead Christmas trees back there. <laughs> I, was, I was back there spraying weeds because I finally got sick of it. So I was back there spraying and I look and we had this lavender plant that actually Paul and Shelly gave us and they moved from Beaverton. They want us to look out for it and give it to him. We killed it. We didn't tell him. We uprooted the thing and threw it on top of a dead Christmas tree and it came back to life on top of the tree. <laughs> so I, I brought it. I planted it. It's pointed sideways. It's coming up now like... This side yard is an unbelievable wreck. And the fact is, I just don't care about it. It's where I keep my trash and all the things that I'm waiting to throw out on the curb on Sandy Cleanup Day, uh, which you all should have gotten an email about. We should know about that because we have things to get rid July 16th, I know. I've, they told me five things, and I've got way more in my side yard. <laughs> if we don't care about something, and it comes into our mind, though, as a condemned spot, my trash can alley, garbage tree alley, uh, we do not take care of it. And my side yard is an excellent testament to that. If we condemn ourselves and we say, I am worthless, we begin to live like one who is worthless. The power of salvation is incredible because Jesus breaks this cycle. He breaks in and he makes failures into testimonies. And he changes the way that we, uh, who we really are and he wants to interrupt how we think. Practice truth, remember truth, and do not be one that condemns others. This story is about a woman who comes up to Jesus. And when she enters the room and when she's there, everybody sees one thing about her. They, who, everything else she's done is gone. She is a woman who has done a terrible thing. And we're going to see how, what does Jesus say about her? We're going to start with the setting, though. We're going to start in Luke 7, and we're going to begin this story. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. This uh, kind of lunch was common. It, this, this, would, this takes place on Sabbath after synagogue. This was a very typical thing to do where if you had a guest that was teaching, and Jesus did that often, 
You would invite them to your house as sort of an honored guest, and they would have time to sit at the table, and you would ask questions of them, and they would answer, and it was sort of a continuation, and it was just etiquette for the wealthy religious people to do this to host the traveling teacher. And they would socialize, and they'd elaborate, and they would ask questions. And so there's nothing odd about him being invited over. The question isn't, uh, why is he invited over to have this meal? The question is, how authentic is it? Is there duplicity in this? Because I don't know about you, but I read the word Pharisee and Jesus in the same sentence, and I think, oh boy, this is not good. They tended to not like him. So we have to ask, is this authentic? Now, the poor were allowed at these lunches is an interesting thing. This was an open thing because it was considered very pious and very good to open the gates and to provide food for anybody that would walk in. And so people would come, but the important thing to know is that if you weren't one of the honored guests, you didn't sit at the honored table. You would sit separate and you were to remain quiet and eat quietly so that you could hear what the rabbi was saying, and you would overhear the, question of the, honor, the questions and answers of the, honest, or the honored guests. So her walking out of her designated area, crossing this ring of, of, of separation between where the poor would sit and the honored guests is um, not uh, something that you would expect, and it's definitely regarded as something rather disturbing or shocking or unwanted. And it's an interesting scene because it says they're reclining at the table, meaning this is one of the more formal settings. The table was really low. Everybody was laying on their side, so his feet are actually pointing away from the table. They're fully exposed back there. So she goes up to his fully exposed feet, starts crying and wiping them, and it is an embarrassing spectacle. In fact, uh, women her age would have been, adult women were expected to be married, and married women would have been expected to keep their hair covered. That was a convention when you got married. So uncovering hair for us in our culture, it really doesn't mean anything to uncover and unbind it. But in their culture, it makes it all the worse, this shameful spectacle. She would have been viewed by people as one of those uncultured, rough inner city folk that cannot read a room and don't know how to act around proper people. It's also interesting that not in this account or any of the other Gospels that also tell this story, do we know what she did. Luke apparently feels that we don't need to know what her sinful life was about. People assume she's a prostitute, but there is just, there's nothing in here that says that. We have no idea what her sinful life is. All we do know is that when she entered the room, it was what everybody thought about her. And we'll see that in a second, but it was what everyone thought about her. No idea what it is. We just know she's a typhoid Mary. Uh, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, it says, he said to himself, this is a thought, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so now we get the, we get the answer to our question. We know it wasn't remarkable that he's invited over. We know that's normal. So our question is, is it honest? And we're beginning to see the duplicity in it. Jesus was not invited over because they hung on his teaching and they wanted to know more. They were moved by it. Something he said moved this woman to such a level that she's crying those tears of like tragic joy. Have you ever been so happy it feels like tragic joy? Just overwhelmed and grateful and gratitude expressing just how much it moved you. Something happened, but he's being brought here to be investigated. Is this person authentic? 
Is he really uh, who people say he is? This invitation is something close to keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. He's being invited in to be observed. And at least for Simon, this Pharisee, it brings up some compelling evidence that to him is pretty irrefutable. And there's a missing thing that exists in the original Greek that we don't have in English. And it's this type of argument they would make. And it was this double-sided, foolproof argument, the Greek total argument. And it was sort of this idea that any way you cut it, it is how I say it is. And so you could come at it from all of these angles, and it is exactly what I say it to be. In fact, Spartacus is quoted saying this in his final showdown with the Romans. He brought his horse out in front of his men. He killed it with his sword right in front of him. And he said, I don't need this horse anymore. For tomorrow, I will either be dead or I'll have my pick of Roman horses. It's sort of this idea that, that, that I am so set, I am so confident. It was this expression of, of Roman Greco confidence of no matter how you cut it, this is what I'm doing, no matter how you see it. It's coming from this angle, and it's the way that it's structured there. If he were a prophet, he would know, and if he knew, he wouldn't let her do this to him. It's an extremely uh, confident expression. And so what's missing that we, that we, that's good to know about that is how incredibly sure of himself Simon is that he has found irrefutable evidence Jesus is not a prophet, a.k.a. a man of God. And his assumption is, is that no man of God would knowingly let her, of all people, touch his feet and do this. The conclusion is that uh, he either doesn't know because he's not a prophet, or he does know and he's a wicked man and therefore he's not a prophet of God. The point of Simon's thought here is to show us that he is incredibly confident in what he's seeing, beyond all doubt that Jesus is a fraud. It's airtight to him. From the way he sees it, he's either not a prophet or he's not a prophet. And yet we know from Jesus, and I'll give you a spoiler, he's about to read his thoughts and reply to that, that he is in fact a man of God and a prophet. But in that moment, one can be fully convinced that he's not. So why are we stopping here for a second before we move on? Be careful with yourself that you do not believe your pessimism because it can be incredibly convincing. God will not come through no matter how I cut it, no matter how I see it. This isn't going to happen. And you can convince yourself, fully convince yourself to where all of the evidence has been reviewed. You've done your investigation and you cannot even imagine a way that God could do great things. That hope is gone. Those who get Jesus really just get him, never bet against him. Unbelievable things happen. You can be fully Greek total argument style convinced that God will not come through, that he is not going to do what he said he's going to do. He is not going to be good. Six ways to Sunday, you know that God has forsaken you. But you should know human pessimism is a murky cloud in which we have overwhelming confidence. That we know that we know that we know that nothing will change. Pessimism leads us away from God, but hope leads us home. So risk disappointment. Hope in such a way that it risks actually experiencing being disappointed. One thing we know is this. When in doubt, always hope in Jesus. He tells a really good parable here. Uh, So reading his thoughts, we're going to be in 
40. Jesus answered him, which he did not say that out loud. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt that was forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. To give us an idea of, the, of what this debt is, the first owes about half a year's wages. The second one owes nearly two years, if you're wondering. And uh, it's an interesting thing because sin and debt are very often compared in Scripture. And we can sometimes miss it because debt is terrible in today's society. It sucks to be in debt. But it was a lot worse back then. And we miss that because we live in an affluent society where debt is something that we can escape from in a way that they could not. In this time, you could easily get into debt doing your absolute very best. Trying your absolute best, this, this is something that could easily happen to someone who was just born into the wrong family. And there was no bankruptcy. What there was was slavery for you and your family. So if you did not have the connections, you couldn't get the loan, you couldn't get things covered, you didn't come through with the harvest when you, when you thought you would, but a famine happened and the rain didn't keep up and the landlord wants his money back, you and your family would go into slavery. It's a terrible thing. You would need someone in that society to come and bail you out, to get you out. Because defaulting on debt was almost identical to being a captive of war. You live that kind of life. Freedom stripped away, home stripped away, family pulled in different directions. You would want someone to come and act on your behalf. You needed it. And so it is with sin, that it is this incredibly oppressive thing that gets hold of us, that puts us uh, pinned into nothing but servitude and slavery. And we need someone to come and reset it, to start over of all the mistakes we made, of all the things we've done that have totally bought, purchased, punched the ticket to go straight into suffering. We need someone to take that from us, take it away as if this horrible debt is over us, and to allow us to reset life now and start over again. And it's a perfect and beautiful image of this kind of forgiveness, to live life anew. And it gets really good when Jesus gives his interpretation of his parable immediately afterward. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I'm sure he did. <laughs> I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, uh, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. What's interesting is, is why the parable at all? Why not just say it plainly? Simon, the fact is, is that you're a self-righteous jerk. And uh, we both know that you brought me here to investigate me. And she recognizes who I am and she's praising me. Why not just say it outright? Because he's kind. The mic is walking away there. Because he's kind. 
It's amazing because he wants to disarm Simon's prejudice. He's, he's showing kindness to two different people. Why the lack of Simon's hospitality? Because he doesn't realize it, but he's hosting God in the flesh duplicitly to investigate and to fault him. An incredible sin. His heart is as hard as stone, and he's missing out on the promises of God. He is an enemy of God in this moment. One of the persecutors, one of the doubters, one of the ones that will bend it against him. And yet Jesus speaks this truth so kindly to him. Because Jesus is now dealing with two types of sinners. He's dealing with a hedonist, and he's dealing with a legalist. And he's kind, and he's good to both. It's an amazing thing. We often have a bias ourselves to have a harder time with one of those two types of sinners. We either have a harder time dealing with and loving the hedonist or the legalist. One of those definitely receives often less compassion for, for us from the other. And it can vary. Some people have a harder time with a hedonist who lives a gross and shocking lifestyle and selfishly hurts other people along the way. Some have a harder time with a legalist whose prejudice and severe life causes incredible hurt and pain. And they seem to be utterly immune to conviction. They don't think they need it. And amazingly, our Lord was tender with both. He gave mercy to them both. Can we have mercy for a woman like this who's made terrible life choices? And they, they must have been terrible. Everybody knew about them. And she's not ceremonially unclean because Jesus is forgiving sins. Something happened. Can we have compassion for people like Simon who miss out on the kingdom of God because of hardened hearts? Jesus had compassion on both. I think it's important for us to, re to, to, to self-examine and to say, Lord, where am I prejudiced? What kind of person do I have a hard time with? And reflecting on this moment because we see this total, this totalitarian, like, that's a bad word, <laughs> This, this complete and, and all-encompassing grace for both types of people. Hedonist and legalist in the same room being treated kindly by the same Lord. And to reread verse, verse 47, it says, uh, Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That phrase separates it all. Why is it that that Typhoid Mary gets Jesus, like gets him, knows who she is, can cry at his feet, can celebrate who he is, receives in that moment the promise of the kingdom of God, and Simon does not, because Simon's sin is concealed. Hers is exposed and forgiven. She has, her life has been a living confession of no secrets. And in that exposure where, where it is out and, and, and it's before Jesus and she's forgiven for it, she's changed. She's been forgiven much, but Simon's who's more secretive, duplicit, private. Even to the point that in his mind, he gets to a spot where he hits the gavel. He's not a prophet. He let this woman touch him. Jesus talks to him, and, yes, teacher? Like, he's, he's a liar. He hides it. And it's why he doesn't get it. If we do not confess, we can't experience forgiveness. If we don't experience forgiveness, how can we grow in love for God? 
And if we don't grow in love for God, how on earth are we going to obey him? Jesus says it plainly. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will obey what I say, my instruction. We learn love from God as we experience the tide of mercy constantly refreshing and renewing us, forgiving us often, forgiving us deep. Those who are forgiven much love much. Or as it says elsewhere in Scripture, we love because he first loved us. Not love in a feeling to where we feel it, but we, we love in the same way that we, would, we, we love on the people around us with gifts and fidelity and the, the way we care for people. We give back to God the loving expression because we received something loving, a gift, an expression to us first. For the journey ahead, you need to be in sync with God. This moment of reset is a wonderful moment to be in sync with God. And we read this story today where we've got one person who's lived a tragic life now in sync with God and one person who's lived a great life who's now tragically not in sync with God. That Christ could be in the room and they miss out or they get in. So we learn from this marvelous woman that it is a good thing to dive deep and experience the mercy of God. And I love the way the story ends. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But the guests began to say among themselves, who uh, is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who is this? Who is this? That question has separated people that get it and don't get it since the beginning. Simon, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Who is the king of the Jews? Who is he? Who do you say he is? This question separates those on the inside and those on the outside. How we answer this question will make us like one who weeps in joy at the feet of Jesus or judges him at a distance like the Pharisee. How we answer this question might just open our eyes that we can be healed and set free. So the question is, who is he? How can two people look at Jesus and come to such different convictions, both of them completely confident? One thinks he has the perfect argument in his head. The other one is to the point to where she's so thrilled at what Jesus has done for her that she has, she's going to go all in. She's been humiliated her whole life, but pedal to the metal. I'm going to weep in front of everybody. I'm going to make this the most awkward lunch anyone's ever sat through. We see incredible confidence as they think they know who Jesus is. We are saved or not saved, in or out, with hope or without hope, on how we answer that question. Is Jesus an ideal? Is he an image? Is he part of my life? Is Jesus Lord of my life? Is he Savior? Is he my salvation? Before we can receive this mercy, understanding who Jesus is is critical, but you never get who Jesus is until you receive the mercy. That's when it gets deep. When we live a life where we are, we live that that life of ongoing confession to God, of openness to God, of not saying, I have done well enough, but to say, Lord, save me a sinner, to live an open life with the Spirit of God, constantly confessing and receiving mercy, that is those who get it. That those who are forgiven much, love much. 
in a season and a time of reset, it is so critical to never just go into hibernation mode in our own growth, our own need of, God, I just need you today. I need your salvation. I need some forgiveness. I need to feel you come into my life and make this thing new. To have an honest life of confession where we do not conceal stuff from the Lord. Opening it up because in that moment we need to have confidence. He is our salvation. He comes with forgiveness. He comes with renewal. Let us be forgiven much that we could love much. Because out of that love comes incredible obedience. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to have you all bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're in here today and you feel like you've never answered that question, who is Jesus? You haven't wanted him to be Lord of your life. It's hard to put faith in what seems like dead religious ideology. But today you're feeling a, you're feeling a, a stirring in your heart and you feel like today is the day to take the step in to join the family that your, your answer to the question changes today, who is Jesus? Today, for the first time, you wanna say he is your Lord and Savior. I wanna give you an opportunity. We're not gonna call you out. No one's gonna embarrass you. You can put your hand up and back down and I'll pray for you. We'd love to be your church, support you, be here for you right now. So if that's you and you feel like today's the day that you're gonna say, Jesus, you're my Lord, I wanna give you that opportunity. Put your hand up right now and back down. It's good for all of us to remember who our Lord is. We can relegate him to being um, part of it, a voice, not the voice, not the one, not the answer, not the salvation. I think it's critical for us today to ask in the week that behind me, in the months behind me, who do I say he is? Is he my captain? Is he my leader? Is he my salvation? And to come to a critical point of changing who we are deep down to have a spirit of confession. Lord, I pray for that, for the hand that's been raised to say, Lord, today I put my confidence in you. What I say of you and who I say you are changes right now. Lord, I pray that an incredible gift of faith falls on them. That as as one person once said to you, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I pray for an incredible, overwhelming faith from the Spirit to be welled up in them, that they would be confident that you are with them, beside them, in front of them, above them, below them, before them. And everywhere they go, and Lord, I pray that there would be the cleansing flow of God as they belong to you. Your people are cared for. They are saved. So, Lord, let your salvation fall on them in this moment as they put faith in you and confidence in you. And a new day when you are their Lord in Jesus' name. Lord, restore in our own minds who you are. That if we have put you off to the side, we haven't seen you as being the king that you truly are. Let us say that you are our savior, you are our hope. Lord, I pray for just a spirit of confession and honesty that as we're before you, we do not lay on ourselves the pressure that we better do it all perfect or we are flawed. Everybody saw one thing when they saw her, but you saw many things. And she was not defined by failure because 
That's how you see. You see in truth. You see in the rationale of heaven, Lord. Let us be received by you like that, that our mistakes do not condemn us. Move in us that we would stop condemning others. Renew in us a fresh mind that we could constantly remember that we can be flawed and messy, yet at the same time declared clean that we could punch our ticket to hell and yet at the same time have it pulled from our hands and given a new destiny. You pay the debt of sin. You forgive us every day that we could be new in you. Give us a spirit of confession to change our own posture that we would always come to you to receive your mercy, Lord. Let that be the center, the beginning point of all discipleship between you and I that it would come from receiving mercy. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the times and seasons ahead, that which you've reset us for. Give us confidence, give us peace, give us rest as we wait. And prepare us, Lord. Help us to partner with you in Jesus' name. Amen.